Be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 into verse five, chapter 5. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we pray now, as we turn to it, that you would, by the work of your spirit, give us attentive hearts and minds, that you would help us, uh, wherever we are this morning, with whatever distractions, uh, things going on in our life that might make it difficult for us to hear your word, that you would, uh, by your word, pierce uh, into our hearts we pray that you would help us to see the glory of Jesus, and we pray that you would change us. And so, uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts as we look at your word this morning be pleasing to you, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So during this season of Lent, uh, as we've... Uh, Approach, as we're approaching Holy Week, as we're remembering Jesus' last week uh, on earth, we've been remembering the way of the cross, the way of suffering and death, and we've been thinking about this theme that the Christian life is like a long defeat, a long defeat that ends in ultimate victory. It follows the pattern of Jesus' own life. From the perspective of this world, from the vantage point of the here and now, it looks like a long defeat. And it's only in the resurrection that we see the ultimate victory. This was true for Jesus, and it's the same uh, for all of us who would believe and follow him. And so this morning, we're picking up back in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where we left off two weeks ago, if you were with us. And what I want us to try to do this morning is to really seek to understand how is it that we can persevere in the long defeat? What do we need to do that? I want us to think about just three things from this text. So let me tell you now, and then we're, we're going to jump in. So I want us to see from this text that we need to compare, we need to groan, and we need the Holy Spirit. So first, we need to compare. If you have the text open, that'll be helpful. Look at verse 16. <clears throat> Paul says, So we do not lose heart. 
In other words, we, we don't give up. We're, we're not ultimately discouraged. Even though if you were with us two weeks, as we looked at this, the passage before, Paul has talked about how he and his companions have experienced great suffering and affliction and hardship. But as he said in the previous passage, God is showing his glory and his power through their weakness. God isn't removing the hardship and the suffering, but he's giving them the grace to endure. And as they're enduring, more people are coming to know Jesus and they're coming to overflow in thanksgiving to God. And so Paul says, therefore, because of that, we don't lose heart. And he goes on to explain more of, of this encouragement that he has. He says, this is where the idea of comparison comes in. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, there are many aspects of our lives um, that involve comparison. And probably, at, at least the ones that initially came to my mind, there's probably a lot of kind of negative ways that we do this. But it seems to me that most of the time when we ask questions about ourselves or our abilities, we're kind of asking comparison questions. So like, do you consider yourself wealthy? Do you consider yourself smart or successful? or athletic, or good at a particular sport, or popular, or important, or beautiful, compared to who? Or compared to what? Compared to most people throughout history, and probably even most people living today, I think we would say that we're all wealthy, but yet compared to Elon Musk? Probably not. Paul, as he accounts for his life and his hardships, he, he's adding it up and he's doing the math and he is comparing also. But unlike a lot of the negative ways that we tend to compare, this doesn't steal Paul's joy in life. His way of comparison remarkably gives him strength to persevere all the afflictions and all the things that are going on in his life. And this is really remarkable because notice in the text that Paul says right now what is happening to him is light and momentary. And we know from Paul's other letters and we know from this letter, especially in chapter 11, and we know from the book of Acts pretty much exactly what Paul considers light and momentary. So these are some of the things that would be under the banner light and momentary, being imprisoned, often near death, being beaten with stones, shipwrecked three times, enduring hunger, thirst, going without adequate sleep, not having proper lodging, and so being exposed to the elements, facing humiliation, rejection, and danger, both from the Gentiles and from his own people, being considered a fool for his faith and his ministry by many. Paul says, light and momentary. And I think we have to ask, how can he say that? Because this, this way of seeing things, this was not natural for Paul. It was not easy for Paul. If you look earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he writes about a specific experience of affliction when he was doing ministry in Asia. This is 2 Corinthians 1 verses 8 through 11. And it was incredibly hard and it was incredibly difficult and it was incredibly painful. And I want to read uh, verse 8 to you of 2 Corinthians 1. Listen to these words. For we were so 
utterly weighed down. Listen to that language of weight. Especially as you look at verse 4, uh, chapter 4, 17, the eternal weight of glory. We were so utterly weighed down beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but God who raises the dead. When Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, and he calls his affliction light and momentary, he's not minimizing it. He, it, it's not like the weight of his afflictions isn't hard. It is hard. It's not that it doesn't affect him or it doesn't hurt. It does. But when compared, when compared to the eternal weight of glory, to all that's coming, to all that God has promised, to resurrection life and new creation and, and fullness of life with God, what once felt like a crushing weight now feels light. What once felt like, like this lethal weight around his neck dragging him into death now feels weightless. This is why Paul can say this. But this is not how, how any of us or me, how we're trained or conditioned to think or account or compare in, in, in our world and in, in our culture. If you've been with us the last four months or so at all, uh, when we were in our series in Daniel, but also especially uh, in our adult and youth Sunday school class, we've been thinking quite a bit about what it means and what it feels like to live in what philosopher Charles Taylor calls the secular age. We live in a world where God and the supernatural and the transcendent, it's like it's functionally ruled out from the start. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. The only things that matter are the things here and now, the things in this world. And so in this collective social imaginary that we sort of swim in these waters every day, what feels real, what feels important, what feels like it counts, what we feel like we need to live life, it's all sought here. And so we look for significance and we look for meaning and we look for identity and we look for purpose in terms of this world only. And we seek a sense of fullness in terms of this world only. And something that numerous people, not just pastors or Christians, but historians and sociologists and psychologists have been pointing out is that this way of doing life, this way of imagining our stories, leaves us incredibly vulnerable and fragile, having hardly any resources to deal with suffering. Because think about it, right? If this world is all that there is, and you get one trip around the sun to make it count and to get all the fullness that you feel you need out of life, then you can't have anything go wrong. Nothing can disrupt that. You can't experience setbacks. You can't have what seem to be years of life that are wasted. You can't have relationships that in any way feel to like drag on you at all. This life is short. This life moves so fast and you can't have things go wrong. Um, John Mayer has a beautiful song called Stop This Train that gives voice to our human longing 
for something that is actually going to last. It's a song about longing to experience the fullness of life that isn't going to be eclipsed by death and taken away by suffering and loss. He speaks about life as if it's this speeding train that just keeps going, a train that you can't get off, a train that never slows down, and in your deepest heart of hearts, what you long to do is you long to go home. And I want, you to, I want you to sit with these words and hear them. Um, so I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to try to sing to you. And I want you to just hear these words. Stop this train. I want to get off and go home again. I can't take the speed it's moving in. I know I can't, but honestly, won't someone stop this train? Don't know how else to say it, don't want to see my parents go. I'm one generation's length away from fighting life out on my own. Oh, stop this train. I wanna get off and go home again. I can't take the speed it's moving in. I know I can't, but honestly, won't someone stop this train? Do you hear the longing? Do you feel it? Life moves so fast and you can't slow it down and you can't slow time and we fear the things that we're going to lose, the loss of loved ones, the loss of health, the loss of youthfulness, the loss of experiences when they end and they've sped by and we're, we're gone. And the longing is, I want to get off, I want to go home. He says at another point in the song, I won't sing this to you, um, he says, I'm so scared of getting older, I'm only good at being young, so I play the numbers game to find a way to say my life has just begun. This is the way of accounting for your life. It says, 50 is the new 40. 70 is the new 60. It's the way of accounting for your life that, that, that narrows it in a sense to say, well, it's, it's, it's really just begun, so I don't have to think about the end. And notice how Paul's approach is almost the exact opposite. Instead of narrowing life to feel like it's just begun, Paul looks at the eternal weight of glory that is coming. And Paul has learned from God the way you do the math of your life, the way you see your story, the way you compare and assess your life is in relation to eternity and all that's coming, the fullness that's coming, the fullness that you can, you experience little tastes of it in this life, but you can never hold on to it. It's like sand. It just goes through your fingers. Toward the end of this song, Mayer uh, makes the same point when he, when he sings this. He says, once in a while, when it's good, it'll feel like it, like it should, and they're all still around, and you're still safe and sound, and you don't miss a thing 
till you cry and you're driving away in the dark singing, stop this train. I want to get off and go home. Even the best moments of life, they go too fast and they're done and they're over. And if we're brutally honest and if this life is all that there is, then even those best moments are covered by the shadow of death that you will lose it all. There is no place for suffering if this world is all there is. The only thing suffering can do is steal your attempts of fullness. But suffering will come to all of us. Are we ready? And this is why what Paul is saying to us in this passage is so important because while Paul would never say that, that suffering or, or affliction is good in any sense in itself, Paul sees how God is using it. Verse 17, he says, it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. It's orienting Paul to focus his life not on the here and now, not on the things that he can see, verse 18, because these things are transient. They don't last. They're not permanent. What is lasting, what is permanent, are those realities of Christ and his glory and his kingdom that will be revealed. And this leads into the second thing that we need to persevere in the long defeat. We need to groan. We see this in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, right? So verse 18, Paul has just said, these things that we can see, they're not permanent. And in chapter 5, verse 1, he writes, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He compares our, our current mode of existence to that of a tent, our current existence, Paul says, it's, it's like tent-like living. And that is contrasted with what is permanent, the building from God, by which Paul means resurrection life in all of its fullness. And so follow his logic, right? Since our life is like a never-ending camping trip, which sounds awful, verse 2, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, in verse 4, Paul will pick up this idea again of groaning and then he switches metaphors halfway through to describe our longing for resurrection as wanting to be clothed. Verse 4, for while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. We groan in the tent in what is wasting away and what is not permanent and what is subject to death. And through this, we long more and more for resurrection life. And this is Paul's point really in verses 1 through 4. The, the impermanence and the vulnerability of our current state leads us to groan. And all of this is meant to stir up and ignite our longing for glory and resurrection life. Now, there's a way, I think, in which we can say everybody experiences groaning. We experience that vulnerability. We experience that sense of, we're, if we think about it, we're going to lose everything. And this is why John Mayer sings the song that he does. <clears throat> and I just want to say, specifically, if you're here this morning and you are asking questions about the Christian faith or, or you're even trying to ask the question, why should I even think about Jesus? Like, why should I even consider this? The pain in your life 
the hard things in your life, the brokenness in this world that even if it hasn't hit your life that much yet, it will. These things are crying out to you and they're shouting to you that you need a redeemer and that you were made for more than just this world. I love the way uh, another pastor put it. I read this quote in Sunday school a few weeks back, so it might be familiar to some of you. But he writes this, there is a divine mercy even within the pain of this life. This is why physicians don't treat pain without first looking to its underlying cause. If you go to the doctor complaining of severe pain below your left rib and he puts you on an opiate to take away your pain, he has not done you a favor. Rather, he has done something very unkind to you. Because that pain is saying something crucial about your existence. That pain may very well be telling you that you have an early stage of pancreatic cancer. If instead of dulling the pain, the doctor does the work to identify the cause of the pain and treat the underlying condition, then that's your salvation. God allows us to feel pain in this life to tell us that there is something fundamentally wrong with human existence, fundamentally wrong with the world. Our pain is screaming at us, telling us that the world is not the way it is meant to be. It is fallen. It is not in need of an opiate, but a redeemer who can raise it from the dead. If you're here this morning as someone who believes and follows in Jesus, the groaning that Paul is talking about in this text is not really just, you know, the groaning that you can hear in that John Mayer song that I quoted to you. This is a groaning that is clearly focused. It's laser focused. It's not just the negative groaning of pain, but it's the positive groaning and longing for glory and resurrection life. In other words, Paul is saying to us, God is up to things in the ways that you experience this fallen world in the ways that you experience the tent-like existence that you are currently in. And he means to use these things to direct your gaze to the coming glory. And a question, as I'm thinking about this text, and I think about us, I'd like to ask us to consider is, are we allowing ourselves space to groan? I think one of the dangers of living in a place like this in the western suburbs is that it is easy with all of the busyness of life and all of the means that we have here to, in a sense, just numb ourselves to sadness and to groaning and to longings that can't be met here. I would guess, because I know it's true of me, maybe you don't feel this way, but I would guess many of us don't know how to be sad or we don't know how to do sadness well because it's easier rather than to sit in sadness and longing that isn't going to be met immediately. It's easier to watch another episode. It's easier to just do more work and feel productive. It's easier to just have a really good drink or meal or have way too much drink and meal or just endlessly scroll on social media. But perhaps our tendency to not sit with sadness and longings, we actually are missing out on the deeper joy and hope that God is seeking to work out in us. Perhaps Jesus was actually right when he says in Matthew 5, blessed are those who mourn, 
for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I think very similar to what we see in this passage, there is in a sense a sanctified sadness that causes us to mourn over sin and brokenness in this world and in our lives and in the stories of those that, we, that we're connected to and this longing for God to comfort. And there's a sanctified emptiness that longs to be filled by Jesus. And just practically for a moment, what I'd like to invite you to do this week is to try and sit in some of those longings. I know we don't have tons of time, maybe 20 minutes. If it's hard for you to even imagine how would I even go about doing this, maybe you could do this after the Monday Thursday service. Or if you can't make it to our Thursday service, you, you can maybe go to another church's Good Friday service. But when that service is over, maybe sometime in that evening, you could take 20 minutes to sit in silence, to contemplate the brokenness of this world, the brokenness of your own life and story, and to cultivate longing for resurrection life and the celebration of Easter. We need to compare, we need to groan, but lastly, what we need to persevere in the long defeat is we need the Holy Spirit. Verse 5 of our text, Paul writes, For he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. This is really the most important thing that we need. And I mean, it's not a thing. It's a person. We need the Holy Spirit because without the Holy Spirit, these other two things are not even possible. Comparing and groaning can't happen. We need the Holy Spirit because perseverance or endurance in this life at its root is not a technique. There's no life hack that's going to take you from zero to 100 miles per hour of following Jesus and longing for glory. It's not ultimately just about mastering some technique or some mind tricks you can do. It's about communion with a person. God giving the Spirit is God giving the gift of himself to us. And the work of the Spirit is meant to point us to Christ Jesus Christ was born into this world through the work of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. The Spirit was with Jesus, empowering him throughout his life and his ministry. Christ's sacrifice on the cross for our sins, the book of Hebrews tells us, chapter 9, verse 14, was offered through the eternal Spirit the Spirit of God raises Jesus from the dead and Jesus as the resurrected and ascended king then sends the Spirit, pours out the Spirit on his people. If you are a believer in Jesus, you are united to Christ by the Spirit. And Paul says in our text, the Spirit is the guarantee, the deposit, the down payment, the foretaste, guaranteeing all that's coming. And this is why we need the Holy Spirit. It's by the Spirit that you are renewed day by day. It's by the Spirit that you can even have the eyes to see the kingdom and therefore even to be able to do what Paul says, to look at the things that are unseen. 
It's by the Spirit that we see the beauty and the glory of Jesus and all that Jesus is and all that he's done for us and, are, and can be transformed into that glory. It's by the Spirit that you can know that you're a child of God. It's by the Spirit with you that helps you to groan and long for resurrection life. And so what I want us to do is, is, is to close now and to, and to turn to a time of prayer and to ask God, the Holy Spirit, for help. Because wherever you are this morning with God, we need the Holy Spirit to help us. And so let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we, we pray for those who are here this morning with us who do not know that they belong to you or who know that they don't. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would lead them into truth, that you would cause them to see Jesus and his beauty. I pray that you would give them life. For all of us here this morning who are united to Christ, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us to experience more and more our union and communion with Jesus. We thank you that you are renewing us and that one day we will burst forth into resurrection life and that already you are working all of that in us. We pray that you would help us not to resist your work. We pray that you would help us to groan and long. We pray that you would do more than we would even know to ask you in this moment. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.